Good morning. Glad to see everybody here. Sun's shining. Um, today's uh, Sunday school lesson is going to be on drug abuse and alcohol, or not really, just the Christian ethics of drugs and alcohol. So it should be a fun time. Um, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, bless us to grasp how wide, long, how high and deep is, your, is the love of Christ. And may we gird up our minds this morning as we study your word and uh, look at how uh, we use our Christian liberty and how um, drugs and alcohol affect us um, in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to give you some basic stats. The average first use of alcohol in the United States for an adolescent is 12 years old. So 12 years old, that's the first one. And for illegal narcotics, it's not that far behind. It's 13 years old. Um, <clears throat> according to the NIDA, uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse, 93% of all teens have consumed alcohol um, by the time they're a senior in high school. And 6% uh, report that um, they're using daily uh, drinking uh, by the 12th grade. Uh, Two-thirds of the United in the United, U.S. students have tried illicit narcotics by their senior year. And one out of 16 seniors reported daily use of marijuana. Um, that's not us, the old people. That's seniors in high school. <laughs> but it may be accurate, maybe more accurate than that. You know, um, the church... <clears throat> The church youth, how's it look, how's it look in the church? Uh, honestly, it really doesn't look much different as far as uh, the youth attending church and, not, and, and the unchurched. Um, out of 14,000 students, 88% of unchurched students drink beer, have drinking beer versus 80% of church children, church kids. Um, Listing other narcotics, percentages between unchurched versus churched is used. The margin is like less six to eight percent. So you're talking about, you know, high schoolers, you know, using illegal narcotics or this marijuana, opioids, um, hallucinogens. It's only about a six to eight percent margin between that and the churched um, teens. So... Uh, Now I'm going to give you guys a whole bunch of stats, and just trust me, hang in there. It'll come right. It'll come back around. Okay, so the, this is intentional. Uh, the leading cause of death for a person under the age of 25 used to be what traffic offenses, traffic fatalities, until about 2010. Does anybody know what the new um, uh, rate of death for, or the cause of death for? Um, our adolescents under 25 years old is now? What? Overdoses, opioids, opioid overdoses, um, surpassing like 2010. You get, a lot of you know my background, you know, worked in the court system for a long time. You know, opioids have become a big, big problem, still are, and, uh, but it's just shocking that we went from car fatalities, automobile fatalities to opioids. Um, within just a couple years. Um, so 
Yeah, Bob said opioids may be the cause of a lot of auto fatalities as well. And that's when we get to like marijuana, you know, there's a lot of, you know, issues with, you know, driving and being high on marijuana. Um, the, the one thing, I guess, you know, because like with alcohol, most teens would say, you know what, you know why it's so high, why we're using marijuana and opioids, because it's easier to get than alcohol. Alcohol is so regulated, you know, it's harder to get. I can, I can go get a couple of caps from one of my friends. I don't need an ID or anything like that. It's really easy to get. Um, as far as alcoholism goes, alcoholism is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Estimate 10 million adult problem drinkers and 3.3 million teenagers in the U.S. are also problem drinkers. Half of all traffic fatalities are alcohol involved. Um, a lot of your motorcycle accidents, unbelievably, are uh, alcohol is involved in that too. <clears throat> And then when we get into like the adults and traffic accidents stuff like that, um, illegal narcotics, the percentages are pretty much the same. It's, it's um, workplace productivity. We lose 40 or it costs us $49 billion in reduced work days, 48 billion in incarcerated expenses, 4 billion in premature deaths. And uh, so that's, uh, so we can all agree there, that's a big problem, right? Has anybody in here been affected by crime? Raise your hand. Hopefully everybody does because uh, it costs us a lot of money. How much do we spend, you know, in, uh, you know, incarceration and stuff like that? So it, it all affects us. Um, marijuana is one of the, like I said, one of the things that's kind of changed since it's been legalized. Um, so a lot of people are saying, you know, well, how do I work that out? my salvation um, that's a great question so um, you know marijuana is not known for it is not known as an empowering drug that enables you to be more competent according to John Piper um, but since it's been legalized like for me like my employer restricts me from having that in my system so I'm still under the civil magistrate or under, you know, an obligation. Um, so, okay, medical costs. How much does it cost medically? Um, the NDIC reports healthcare costs attributed to more than $11 billion. So we spent $11 billion on overdoses, treatment, all that stuff that comes along with um, illegal narcotics. That includes, like I said, inpatient treatment, medical interventions, emergency services, prevention and treatment. Okay, let's go to crime. Uh, that's kind of where I've spent most of my life. Uh, according to NDIC, annual drug-related crime in the United States costs $61 billion. Between 63% and 83% of all people arrested test positive for some type of illicit narcotics. Uh, I was a parole officer for a very long time um, and I can tell you that just about everybody I dealt with, whether alcohol or drugs, were involved in whatever was going wrong in their life. You know, a lot of times, hey, Schmid, I wouldn't even see you if it wasn't for drugs and alcohol. You know, you know yeah, probably not. 
but you know I had the privilege of working in a municipal court which is really fun because you get everybody from every walk of life you know you'll have the thugs professionals regular people you know it's it, to me it was a lot of fun but you see how drugs that addiction part of it doesn't discriminate you know I had co-workers I ended up with a co-worker on probation I had to supervise you know she was um, <clears throat> she worked down the clerk's office watching the news one night and you know, small town Ohio so it's on the news she overdoses in a speedway bathroom oh whoa so I ended up getting her on probation she I mean uh, again with the type of work that I did I just really had some really cool one-on-one -on -one conversations with people about drugs and alcohol and how the problems would go she would tell me she's like look she goes I told myself I'd never use heroin she was using pills and I would never shoot heroin and a lot of people who use heroin would say that they would say like I never would do that but you get to a point where you're a slave to it and you got to get it and you're going to get it however the easier way is to get it right and so she would say I, I never thought this would happen to me but you know it did um, <clears throat> and heroin right now is significant in just about every crime that we have major property crimes insignificant property crimes um, back in 2007 right before the what they call it the opioid you know um, just kind of crushed the central part of Ohio um, it, you know it was the, the whole dynamic changed from older people using heroin to the the age was 17 to 27 years old overnight I don't I and all these crimes you know I was talking about these crimes are nuisance crimes they were going into Walmart stealing stuff for t you know just for 20 bucks so they could go get a couple caps of heroin I mean caps you know, pills of, of heroin that they could take so in the court system <laughs> our the lowest risk person we had was our neediest person and we spent more of our resources on that person than the people who are committing the you know the big crimes that make the newspaper and it was it was a very interesting time to to be a part of the probation system at that age as I came in right at the, right at the end of the crack epidemic and so to see that change was kind of interesting but when you look at drugs and how it, you know just about every crime is involved in that um, human trafficking, prostitution, property crimes, gang violence, domestic violence, assaults, parental neglect, all those things typically, as I guess not really a research, but my experience is through just talking to hundreds of people on probation or parole or been arrested or, you know, writing pre-sentence investigations is all involved. You talk to, you know, human trafficking victims, you know, they started out using drugs uh, or they got hooked on drugs from whoever was trafficking them. They're using them to make money off of them. We have the highest or largest incarcerated population in the world, United States. Incarceration costs $87 billion per year is how much we spend to incarcerate people. One in three Americans have a criminal record in the United States has, <clears throat> so one in three people have a criminal record. 
And, um, <clears throat> and like I said, we we're talking about that 83% of those people tested positive when they were arrested. And, you know, when I started out doing parole and probation, there was this thing, this is my drug of choice. This is it right here. By the time I was done, there was no drug of choice. It, we always call it the combo plate. They just, people were, whatever they could get their hands on, that's what they were going to use. And they were gonna use it to abuse it to get high. And uh, so, <clears throat> has anybody been the, you know, when you go to prison, you know, that's, that's gotta be pretty traumatic experience, right? So we're not only dealing with drugs causing all these monetary things, there's also trauma, you know, PTSD. You know, uh, <clears throat> I mean, some people who go to go to prison, like, you know, sentencings are different. You know, plea bargains are different. So, you know, some people are going to prison for using offenses, and other people are going to prison for, you know, uh, drug, you know, dealing, which is a completely different person. And when you go to prison, it can cause trauma. So we have victims. Um, of abused parents, family members being used for human trafficking, trauma being incarcerated, witnessing self-destructive, you know, behaviors of relatives, friends, coworkers, um, loss of relatives, friends, coworkers, traffic traffic accidents, as Bob had mentioned. So, do you think there's a lot of trauma out there that's not being dealt with? I would say, yeah, there is a lot of trauma. You know, you know and like I said, I you talk to you get an opportunity to talk to people and you hear their stories and it's like, yeah, you know, first time I used was with my parents or first time I used with, you know, first time my kid used heroin was with me, you know, you, so there's a lot of trauma that goes along with that, that people need help, right? Um, <clears throat> so how does the church handle all that? Uh, we have a huge problem, and what's the response of the church? Um, one response is infighting, right? You know, argue. You know, we can infight over. You know, what what substances can we use? What liberty do we have to use this substance or that substance? Um, uh, Elder McGuire a couple weeks ago said he was on some type of conservative or you know a forum of Christians. And he's like, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves the way you're talking to each other and how you're fighting over some of these issues. Um, I went on YouTube just to kind of look and had two guys talking about alcohol, whether you should use it or not use it as Christian. And it, there was no love in that conversation. Those guys, they knew their Bibles. They knew exactly where to go to try to prove their point. Um, <clears throat> they're very well versed. They're very articulate. And like I said, they, they knew where to reference their point. How do you think that ended up? The argument, it started, they started arguing and then eventually digressed into character assassination. So it really didn't do anything, right? What's that? No winner. Oh. And so, like I said, it's, you know, fighting over that liberty. Uh, there was no gospel in that exchange. And I guess when I was looking at it, it was like the fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And, you know, looking at those two going back and forth, it, 
There was no gospel in that exchange. <clears throat> and uh, this one hits kind of close to home. Chris will tell you. We were uh, visiting a family a long time ago, almost almost little after the late 1900s. We were visiting a family, and we got into this discussion about alcohol. They were new believers, and they believed that we should abstain. All Christians should abstain, and we had this conversation, and it kind of went the same way as this, this YouTube conversation went. It didn't go well. Um, so it was, it was interesting to have that conversation. <clears throat> and the uh, really interesting thing was is there's a person um, in that family who at that, at that time was struggling with dependency issues. And what are the Christians arguing about, discussing our liberty, what we should do, what we shouldn't do? Instead of looking at this person and going, we need, we need to help. That's where that's where we need to be. So, um, yeah, that that really hit close to home. And then when, actually, when I was doing this study, it kind of hit me in the face. Uh, it's been that long. It's like, oh man, it was right there. So, um, I'm going to read Jonah one, verses four through six. Uh, a lot of this information was received through Dr. Timothy Keller um, that I that I'm referencing. Um, but Jonah one four through six. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own god and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship but jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell asleep fell into a deep sleep the captain went to him and said how can you sleep get up call on your god maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So what's the captain saying to Jonah? He's saying, I understand that you're, an original, you're a religious man. What are you doing asleep? Get up there and use your faith for the public good to save us. Get your faith out there where it can be used in the public good. Don't you see we're dying out here? So when we talk about Christian ethics, drugs, and alcohol, are we looking at what's going on out there? Are we just involved in just our own infighting and how we use our liberty? Um, So Jonah was rebuked by a pagan. Then, you know, honestly, Jonah was down there. He didn't like him. He was running away from anyway. He was running away from Nineveh, let alone the guys on the ship. So... Um, <clears throat> and one of the problems and how he was rebuked he was rebuked in two ways um, one uh, Jonah had no idea about the problems he was so distant from problems of the people around him he doesn't know their situation so what was Jonah doing down there sleeping he was upset because he had to go to Nineveh and share the gospel share God's love with a bunch of sinners so maybe he was down there pouting Maybe he was feeling sorry for himself. Uh, Maybe he was just overwhelmed with this task because he didn't have a heart for what God was telling him to do. So, like I said, Jonah was wrapped up in his own situation and not wanting to go and share God's love with the Ninevites. (coughs) 
And secondly, Jonah's not using the resources around him to help save them. Jonah stands up, repents, and is willing to die for them. Then the, uh, the sailors believe, right? So they believe and they're saved at that point anyway. And, and like I said, at one point they're pagans, so that is a step in the right direction. Um, but Jonah's not using the resources around him <clears throat> to help for the public good. Okay. So Jonah finally stands up. He's like, okay, I'm going to go up and, you know, own up to what's going on. And so he stands up, he repents, and he's willing to die for the people that he, that he was, that, that believed and saved that start, you know, the, that's a start that these people believed because he, they're like, they're pagans. And they're like, there's two prayers, right? There's a prayer of fear and a prayer of faith. They had the prayer of fear. You know, they didn't trust God that God was going to save them from the storm. And <clears throat> so, you know, they come down to Jonah. Hey, you, you, you are a believer in God. Maybe this God will save us. And so, it, you know, that's a start, right? That we have a, someone say, okay, we believe that, you know, maybe this will get us out of trouble. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so how does Jonah, how does this change Jonah, you know, when he goes up there, you know? Jonah realizes that the playing field is level, that he's a sinner saved by grace. Jesus almost never, so he's, he's saved by grace, so we're all in the same boat, right? Whether we're in here, out there, we're all in the same boat. And so Jonah realizes this, and he ha- helps him have compassion and understanding on people that he doesn't relate with, that he doesn't understand, Right? Because a lot of times when we look at, I can be guilty of this, of looking at others, I can be pharisaical. And that's what Jonah was doing. He was being pharisaical. He was looking at others and saying, you know, I I don't agree with what you're doing, and um, I'm a little bit better than you. And as Tim Keller says, Jesus doesn't yell at too many people, but he sure did yell at the Pharisees, right? That self-righteousness. So... So at this point, you know, like I said, the pagans kind of rebuke Jonah, the believer. And then can the church be rebuked from, from the public? Can the, the world rebuke the church? And, you know, as a church, as the church, not knowing the world's problem, being so caught up in infighting and what kind of music do we have? What am I, can, what can I wear to church? What? You know, what kind of, do we have children's programs? Do we not have children's programs? Do we have children's church? Do we not have children's church? What's, what's the sanctuary supposed to look like? You know, I've, Chris and I have been to uh, several churches kind of like that. Like, you know what, if, uh, if you didn't wear a tie, kind of a second class. That's what I love about Spring Meadows is the diversity of Spring Meadows. You can be who you are and all that. But we've been to churches where it's like, you know, you kind of got to toe the line. You got to dress a certain way. You got to act a certain way. You got to say things a certain way. And that's kind of the infighting that we get within our churches and in our denominations. There's whole denominations that are 
their whole thing is we don't drink. That's what separates us from everybody else. Okay, that's great, but are you under deck or on, or out on the deck looking out the world's problems and saying how can we use our resources and our faith to affect and help? Um, so I went to a church where it's a brilliant guy and uh, he, knew the, he knew the Lord, walked with the Lord. He knew God's word very faithfully, but uh, for whatever reason, he wouldn't wear a tie to church. And so in that specific congregation, they had a lot of elders come up, hey, you know, we think you're a great uh, candidate to be an elder, but you probably should start wearing a tie and a coat. You know, it, and like I said, bring this back to all these statistics that I gave you at the beginning of the class. What's going on out there? They're on deck out there. We're dying. What's, what is the church doing? Are we going to fight about, am I going to be a little more buttoned up than everybody else? Or am I going to look out, go up on deck like Jonah and say, okay, I, we have to affect our communities. All these people coming out of incarceration, there's a lot of trauma. There's a, a mo- like I said, we're talking that 80% report, report some type of substance abuse um, when they went in. Um, as a parole officer, I actually had a couple cases that they were... Uh, certified as adults so they went in adult prison I had one guy went in at 15 years old did not have any drug problems when he went into prison he was under protective custody for three years um, because of his age and his youth while he was in prison for 15 years he developed a heroin addiction he uh, ended up going to uh, recovery while he was in prison. So he got a heroin addiction and recovered in prison before he got out. So we have all these problems, all this crime, all this stuff that affects our world. And when we look at our Christian worldview of drugs and we are sitting there going, well, should we use it? Should we not use it? It should be, are we going to be on deck? Because there's a lot of hurting people out there. There's a lot. Um, So as a church, what can we do to get on deck? What can we do to affect our community, to use our faith, and to um, use our resources to affect our community? And then, you know, talking about the story that that Chris and I had with that couple that we visited, you know, it kind of comes back around, right? You know, we're sitting there discussing probably almost arguing about abstinence, not abstinence. And right up on deck, somebody right in front of us who is struggling with dependency issues, and we didn't even see it because we were too laser focused on, I'm right or you're wrong about this. When it should have been, she's hurting. She, she needs help. How can we use our resources to help her? But just like the YouTubers, you know, we're focused on inside instead of what's going on outside. And I gave you all those statistics at the beginning to say that the world is hurting. And we need to figure out, as a ch- not specifically, but the church needs to figure out how are we going to get involved? How are we going to use our resources? How are we going to use our faith to affect the community in a positive way?
Does anybody have any ideas? I'll open it up. Uh, I had one idea of, you know, like I said, we can host a, uh, you know, 12-step program or some type of recovery program here. Uh, we can open up our doors for that. Even though we may not be theologically on the same page, but people do get help from those things. Walt? Okay, he's going to come with the, I was going to repeat what you said, but it's a little long, so. In my experience, uh, all too often, it's uh, people that evangelize are bringing people to church instead of being the witness in the community. Um, you know, I've been out there for 17 years, mm -hmm. and most of the people that come and help me are the women preachers and the universalists. And so then they kind of run away after they start listening. Um, you know, it, it, uh, Jesus always said, you know, the, the mission field is huge and the workers are few, and that just always seems to be the part that plays out. Uh, but we can always do it on a smaller scale, too, you know, talking to our neighbors one-on-one, mm -hmm. -on -one, just the one-on-one -on -one conversations. You know, it doesn't have to be always in a group setting. So. Right, building relationships. Anybody else have any ideas, of, you know, how we can get up on deck as a church? Um, like I said, for 10 years, we were at a high school where we didn't have a building, a resource to affect the community because we were renting a high school. Now we have a building. How do we use that? Um, I think maybe um, by volunteering in the community because then we get around people that we're not maybe in our peer group and it exposes us to different needs there's a variety of things to do and time limits too it can be very limited and I think treating everybody that crosses our path as made in the image of God that I'm no better than anybody and like you were saying just to show them compassion and kindness even instead of like look what the Bible says in first Corinthians and at a minimum, at least do that. Oops. Hi, I'm new. Hey. <laughs> My name's Claire. Um, hi, Claire. Hi. Uh, host dinners here for those who are in need because there is so much crossover between substance abuse homelessness, those who are in need, or home unstable, hosting a dinner once a month, once a week here from this church would bring those people to us to be able to serve them right where they're at and may open up those conversations. Right. Thank you. So like I said, getting out there, like I said, my experience, like I said, being in parole and probation, um, what I dealt with, a lot of the people, not everybody, but most people that are in my circle would be completely clueless to what goes on out there. Uh, but by being able to use our resources and you know being capable of changing our city and um, using those resources to do that, I think that's uh, something that we should think about. Yeah, Ms.
I know that uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin, who's a Baptist Reformed pastor in Arizona, um, he has done a lot with this. He actually was addicted at one time to, I think, heroin and other things, and so he would be a good resource to look up. They actually had a podcast recently on how um, the world's way of helping people out of addiction is actually just leading them into more kinds of sin. And so he might be a good resource for us to look up as far as, and even, you know, maybe contact um, their church as to ways to minister that would deal with the problem um, just because they, they've already been doing it. They, he was a, I think he was a prison chaplain for a long time too. Okay. Um, so you have a huge benefit of of being aware and experience with people you know who have been addicts or you know on the inside or um, but a lot of us don't have that so it's a little intimidating I think for a lot of people who haven't had interaction with somebody that you know we want to help so I think that it's really important to equip and train us or you know people all of us to reach out to those in need I mean we're all in need right but help us to relate like so maybe ways of doing that might be to bring in guest speakers to kind of make us more aware of and like this class um, but you know just making us connect more because I think there's a disconnect there okay you know, I would say like a lot of the statistics that we, the, the book that we're referencing um, is, was uh, published in 2005. So a lot has changed since 2005. And, you know, just my experiences and talking to people, a lot more people are very well much aware of what heroin and drugs have done in people's lives and how it has affected them. It's, it's not as rare as it used to be uh, because that heroin epidemic came through. You know, Tim's wife, or Pam, was robbed two weeks ago. You know, and it, it all affects us, and we all know. And by the time we look at the statistics, by the time we kind of know somebody that had some type of dependency struggle um, and how that affects, you know, their criminal, their behavior and their criminal record. Um, but you're right, like I said, we could equip, um, equip us with more, more education so that we feel we're ready uh, to go out and to positively affect the community. So, is there any? Bob? Yeah, he's... It seems to me that, that there what what is needed is a, a two, at least a two-pronged approach prevention would be huge if you can prevent young people from ever starting down that road because I'm, I suspect that a large number of your clients were frequent flyers repeat repeat offenders and they're also were they're also parents I see so um, I think uh, the, the statistics that you began the lesson with 
were huge, I think, for somebody that hasn't tried using an illegal substance or whatever, if they see, or parents especially, if they see how young people start, how young they are when they begin to use, if they could use that information to discourage their children and encourage them not to go down that path in the first place and to learn from other people's mistakes. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know how it, it would be really difficult for me personally to not become judgmental about these people that are repeat offenders and thinking, well, they're, they're hopeless. There's nothing right. we can do for those people. And, and then a, another thing that I thought that I had at the beginning when you were sharing those statistics with us, what parents also need to know about non, um, non-controlled substances that people get in trouble with, like huffing. Mm-hmm. They, kids have, have discovered or somebody sh- has shared with them that they can sniff nitrous oxide from canned food substances and stuff that are in aerosol form or whatever. And, right. Uh, and and they, all these things are, and a lot of the things they, that they sniff or huff is damages their brain permanently. Right. Yeah. So I think education is a huge thing, for, especially for young people, so they don't ever begin a life like that. And don't then, start nothing, won't be nothing, right? Well, yeah, I am. My parents shared with me, and I've tried to do the same with my children, that when they were young, I said, when you think about doing something, ask yourself, something that's risky, ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen if I do this, and could I live with that if that happened? And I said, that'll help you make some decisions right away. Right, right. And that's that's all I have. Thank you. Thanks. Tim had a comment. And by the way, I'm a repeat offender to God. <laughs> I'm a savior. I'm a sinner saved by by grace, by mercy. Um, it's, a, it's all it's a level field. Like I said, I'm a repeat offender. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of uh, how we respond to this, there's always a learning curve doing ministry, and it's messy, and it can be disappointing, and it can be heartbreaking, and it can. I don't want to be negative totally mm-hmm. here but just state the facts that that's real. Um, And one good way to start is partner with others who are doing it. Now you took my thunder. Yeah. (laughs) What? (laughs) Still got what? Did I miss it? Oh, did I? (laughs) Yeah. Well, then I'll be quiet. No, please. No, no. But the other is... um, one of the things that a guy like me looks at and sees often in terms of church ministries is you have about the same 10% of people doing everything. Right. And one of the things I would like to see happen in the church is a broader involvement of people to do the ministry uh, or be part of the ministry. Perhaps you've never even stepped out. But I bet every one of us know, knows someone personally struggling with addiction. Yeah, I would I, agree I, with I that. I know we do. And it's in all of our families, maybe even in our immediate family, maybe us. Yeah. But the issue there is 
there's a lot of different ways to do ministry, but if we're going to do it as a church, then I'll let you tell us how. <laughs> well, like I said, I was going to say, you know, that there's a lot of things that have already been started at other, there's, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel or we can start off with, you know, holding a meeting here and see how that goes, build relationships and, you know, go from there and see what other things there are. But using a resource, and when I was right looking at this, I was like, okay, you know, this building is a resource. Our faith is a resource. And it just really, uh, to me, it was just like those two things, you know. How can we use our, <clears throat> our resources and our faith to affect our community? Sorry, I stole it. So the, this is a big discussion we had during the social justice study a few years ago, and we could bring it up in lots of issues. There, the, theologically, we have to make decisions. There are, there are theological arguments for a local church to be involved, or, or what weight you put on social issues, right? Um, and there are, good, the, in my opinion, good theological arguments on either side. So we basically have to make a decision as a church, and obviously that ultimately the elders will make that decision. And, and then we, we make those decisions as, as individuals and as families in a neighborhood. You can't do everything. And so right. at some to. level you need to, we, we could parade 20 different social ills, right? And we'll all feel guilty for 20 weeks. So we really need to make decisions to focus and do something. Uh, um, and again, some will, will, number one, everyone should do something individually, right? Obviously you, you, you preach the gospel you don't judge people. There are, there are individual character sides of things for sure. But then based on your family circumstances, your, your pace of life, um, maybe you individually will get involved in something and, and really commit a lot of time there. And again, I think you have to focus. There's only so many things you can do. And then as a church or maybe as a community group or something, you decide. But I, I think if we just say we need to do something, nothing will get done. And so... I still personally see a disconnect between our church mission and vision statement and, and how we're using the building or using our church. I, I, I think we could change the mission statement or we could do something more. And we've been talking about this for a few years and you know we've got into our building, COVID hit, yeah. and so it's fine. It, it's, it's very understandable. I'm not, I'm not really throwing spears, but we do at some point, I think, need to make a decision is it right for us as a local church, or do we join with parachurches or encourage individuals? I think those are all valid, but it would be nice to be focused in a direction at some point. But. Sorry. Um, I kind of like what um, our brother said here. And in my own experience, I've, I've been through the recovery. I've, I've been on papers. I've... Um, had I would just say I've dodged bullets I, I've sat in those meetings the 12-step meetings and I hear blasphemies mm -hmm. I hear awful theology I hear worldliness I hear uncorrection and my heart was grieved and you know so however I'm not opposed to seeing objective attempts to minister you, you, you know I don't have those answers um, however how do you keep the main thing the main thing you, you, you know like because I believe God spared me 
because I was convicted of my sin through the preaching of the gospel. And I was mandated to go to meetings twice a week for four mm -hmm. years. And, and the only thing I really, in my own experience, gathered from it was that these people are being led astray. And it was awful. It was so hard for me to sit through it and get my paper stamped. I made it. I made my attendance. <laughs> and so, um, and present it to my parole and probation. Yeah. Y y you know, it was, um, it was a blessing and a curse. And I'm grateful that God spared me. And, I, and I've been in the Celebrate Recoveries where they attempt to Christianize it. And it's um, another situation where, like, so my thoughts are, like, how do you facilitate that? Where the, situ where the, the structure is um, a free-for-all. And I go, how do you be a good steward of this, this attempt to, to minister and provide a means where people can share yet i mean i've been asked to leave because i was sharing with the group that god saved me through the preaching of his word and they go you know what that's about enough of that yeah. and i'm going dang i thought i was in the house of the lord i was sh i was i was so sad and so i don't know what it looks like and i do know that it's burdensome when you put conditions on people. And, and I do know that, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I believe that the Lord saves through the preaching of his word and through the administration of the sacraments and, the, and, the, um, and I think that's how God primarily works. However, there is a compassion that needs to be had on those that are hurting and um, I don't have those answers. However, right. if, if there were ever some um, um, serious considerations of, of doing a meeting like, of, because I think it's a good thing, how does, how does that get done appropriately right. with and wisdom? Just for clarification, this class is on about drugs and alcohol. There's a myriad of topics where our church could get on deck about, not just about drugs and alcohol or holding a meeting. I'm just throwing something out there. Like I said, there's, there's, we're going to be going through this book most of the summer on Christian ethics, and there's lots of topics where we could get on deck about. It's not just about, but this particular course is on drugs and alcohol. I have one more question. Um, so just as a practical idea, um, you know, for instance, Angel Tree, um, our church could host um, yeah, because in Ohio we went to a community center, and it was very sociable. Where the kids came and got their gifts. These are kids of incarcerated uh, parents and their families, and so it was an opportunity to get to know them and their families who are being directly affected. And that wasn't even a church event, so that's one idea. But I think I, I mean I agree with Keith that this has to be driven by the session. It can't just be one person out there. Like, I think this is a good idea because it, it just won't take root. Um, so I just encourage you know, us as a church to define what that, what our, you know, like Keith said, how we're gonna what our, what our fulfill is. our mission. Yeah. Okay, 
All right, to be respectful of Tim's time, we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for our fellowship. Um, We thank you for the blessing of um, helping us to look outside and see how we can possibly affect our communities and how we can use our faith and our resources to do that. Just pray that you would gird up our minds as we listen to the word through Tim and you would bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen.